welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And today, we have a fantastic panel, as usual, including the, the always lively Aaron Bush, uh, co-founder of Novik here. We've got Matt Dion, uh, a Novik contributor and a founder of Always Scheming, and Philip Monta, a head of studio at Fun Plus. Uh, how are you doing, Matt? And especially, uh, you got some stuff going on at Always Scheming, which appropriately named. Yeah, hi. I'm doing well. Thanks. Um, uh, yeah, Always Scheming is just kind of my um, the home for all my writing. Um, if you've been following me on LinkedIn or Twitter, you know I've been really into sort of uh, Web3 topics, and uh, particularly like... Um, uh, fully on-chain gaming is a, a real area of interest of mine, but really it's just a home for all of my writing. So if you are interested to follow along, uh, it's uh, always-scheming.fyi. Sweet. FYI, indeed. Yes. <laughs> cool. Well, we've got some uh, good topics today. Lots of fun things happening, especially during this kind of earnings season. A lot of stuff to talk about around that. Uh, we've got a, a new studio coming from a former Dice head. Quite a few of those popping up these days. Uh, some issues coming out of Embracer, kind of a hot topic uh, at the moment. Axie Infinity also finally releasing on mobile, sort of. Uh, Mortal Kombat coming out swinging into a, a bit of a crowded uh, ring here. And then Take-Two and Ubisoft's earning data, which uh, should be fun to dive into those numbers. Uh, but first, we want to get started on uh, the old uh, steadfast topic of uh, Microsoft and their forever merger here. Yeah, exactly. So we have one more uh, episode on this series. So now, <laughs> and this time we have China that has uh, approved the deal of Activision Blizzard. Uh, so it joins uh, Japan and European Union that, that they approve uh, lately. So there is a total of 37 countries that uh, have already uh, approved the, the deal so far. But yeah, this is not enough. So as a mean of recap, uh, there are three main regions that uh, have to prove the deal. One is the, the US, the other is the UK, and the third one is the European Union. So out of these three, only the European Union has approved it. Uh, it was after some discussions with uh, Microsoft where they agreed to let players stream their Activision Blizzard uh, games on company services for free. So preserving the competition in the cloud gaming service. Um, but uh, we still have uh, like the, well, the uh, US, uh, the um, Federal Trade Commissions that filled a legal challenge back in December. So this is still to be, this is still pending. And the CMA in the UK, which uh, banned the, the the deal in April 26, but also has made a, a reply to the uh, European Union approval, that meaning that this is not enough uh, for them. So uh, it stands by its decision and it's not willing to to make a change. So yeah, one one more step in in this uh, soap opera, but it's still like not getting close to an ending. What do you think? Do you think this? 
it's going to change or it won't go out. I'm just so tired of this. Like, good on the EU and China for making the obvious decision to approve the deal and bad on the CMA for just being bad at its job still and doubling down on on their stance for whatever reason, uh, which is hard to discern whether it's from lobbyists or some other political push that's keeping them, you know, just clinging on to the cloud gaming thread as the reason to block the whole thing The you know, and specifically the UK's cloud gaming market. Uh, it's just it's just wild, and I probably shouldn't go on and on about that. I don't know. I mean, I suspect the U.S. will, you know, turn a corner. I would guess, and eventually come around to approving the deal. The CMA maybe not, and so it's just a question of whether they can come to some term to kind of carve out, you know, some deal that will allow Xbox to do what it wants around the world, but have modified rules for operating in the U.K. That's my best guess on the outcome here, but it's hard to be rational when there are irrational, you know, decision-making going on. So we'll have to see. What can we add here that hasn't already been been said about this deal, mm-hmm. right? Like it's been covered to death and I don't know, it's, it's weird that we find something that Europe and China agree on, but, um, you know, somehow the UK is the, the odd country out here. I don't know. It's just a strange state of affairs. Yeah, I, I find myself in an odd position of, of rooting for Microsoft to finish a, an acquisition for once <laughs> instead of you know coming from the 90s where it was the bad thing. But uh, hopefully they'll close all that sooner or later so we can move on to talking about what they actually do after that merger. But yep. uh, I guess we've also got the, the opposite of a merger uh, sort of thing here with uh, an ex-DICE employee going on starting a new studio, which one among many, I think we've seen kind of coming from Battlefield. What a transition. Um, yeah, so the news uh, just the other day that um, a new studio was announced called TTK Games, which is Time to Kill Games. Um, those of you that are big shooter fans will recognize that acronym. Um, this was founded by Lars Gustafsson. Um, who goes by the nickname Mr. Battlefield. So he came from DICE. He was the creative director at DICE for many, many years. Um, and also, you know, several members of the founding team also coming from DICE, the design director, the CTO, the art director, also ex-DICE folks. Um, and, uh, you know, no surprises here. They're working on a next generation online shooter. Uh, n- none of the uh, backers for the studio were announced. I don't know if they have any uh, formal backers. I didn't see anything on Crunchbase. But, um, you know, uh, uh, interesting development. Um, I was at the, uh, the all hands meeting when, uh, when Lars announced that he was leaving EA, this would have been five, six months ago or more at this point. And, um, it was a big deal, you know, like he was emotional. The others in the studio were emotional. Like he was a big part of the culture there at dice and, you know, if you look at, um, you know, a lot of these startups, they have uh, a section where it's like, oh, our founders worked on these games. If you go to their website and look at the games they've worked on, it's like Battlefield 1, Battlefield 4, Battlefield 3, Battlefield 2042, Battlefront. It's like it's all dice games. Um, and so, you know, obviously a pedigree there, right? Like um, very impressive background, very impressive founding team. And I'll be interested to see what they do. Um, you know, as Devin alluded to, this is not the first studio to spin out of um, Dice. Uh, a couple noteworthy ones that I stumbled acro- across in my research here: 
Uh, Embark Studios was the big one. They're founded by Patrick Soderlund, and they make uh, a game called The Finals, which uh, had a bunch of uh, buzz around it not too long ago. It's like a, a shooter, a competitive shooter with a lot of uh, destructible environment envel- uh, uh, elements to it. And then there's another one called Wayfinder Games, which is backed by Dreamhaven and Makers Fund. And they're doing RPGs, interestingly enough, uh, not shooters at all. Um, they had a, a little bit in their founding story about like, they were playing games outside of work and they were like, what would we do if we had our own studio? It's like, would we make shooters? No, we want to make RPGs. And so they're making RPGs. Um, so anyways, um, just, you know, the latest in a, a number of X dice um, startups and um, certainly a good pedigree, a strong pedigree for making a new shooter. So I'll be interested to see what happens there. So we've had the Blizzard Mafia. Everyone's been talking about the Riot Mafia. Should we be throwing the Dice Mafia into the same conversation? Uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Aaron. I I meant to mention that, and I'm curious to hear you guys' thoughts on this as well. Um, I have spoken to, in the past, I've spoken to a a couple of folks who work in in venture capital at at games, and, and they raised this topic that like, oh, you know, we see X Riot, X Blizzard, they have this like pedigree where you know, they're, they're the founders that come out of these companies are more likely to be successful, at least in their view. But they don't necessarily see that coming out of EA. And I wonder if you all agree with that. Um, if you have thoughts on why that might be, if it is true, if you take it to be true. Um, maybe it's just Dice Studio specifically or EA broadly. I don't know. I'm curious to hear your all's thoughts. I think it's kind of interesting. They're, they're sort of... Um reverse uh, what we have kind of going on inside EA where um, you originally had someone coming from Call of Duty that spun off into Respawn Studios, Mm -hmm. then get folded into EA, then take over Battlefield as people leave Battlefield. So you get this kind of weird shuffle going around uh, from all the shooter people, right? Like the people that that know shooters, that do shooters well, like you talk about like the the pedigree that kind of comes from that thing. I mean, obviously some are going off and doing RPGs, but it's it, it's difficult to do a really good shooter, I think, personally, just like to, to diversify from the typical kind of FPS stuff. So I think it's interesting that these people kind of move around and, and maybe we'll see some of these studios that spin off then also get reacquired by an Activision Blizzard kind of company or an EA uh, and kind of get reabsorbed into a bigger company once again, like Respawn did. That's an interesting thought. Um, I wonder, like, I'm not sure how to, how to articulate this, like, there, it, it's such a top-heavy genre that maybe you see this like sort of uh, cycle of like you know from hopping from franchise to franchise to startup to franchise. Like <clears throat> maybe it's just we're we're we keep going back to the same talent that has proven themselves, uh, and we're not seeing as much innovation or diverse voices. I, I don't know. I'm speculating here, but it is a very like it's Call of Duty. And it's Battlefield, and there's you know a bunch of others in the like next tier, PUBG, what have you. Um, but it's very top heavy, right? It's tough to break through in that genre. I guess we'll have to see what Ubisoft can try and do with their their Tom Clancy one that is kind of somewhere in that. I think. Well, the the complete opposite of shooters here, uh, Axie Infinity, uh, finally launching somewhat onto mobile. Yeah, so exactly. Everybody knows Axie Infinity by SK Mavis. Uh, so it was like this game that uh, popularized the play to earn uh, back in the day. And then like kind of like 
took a big hit after some hackers uh, stole a lot of money from 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 the chain. So the same company uh, has released Axie Infinity Origins uh, now on the Apple's App Store uh, in selected countries. So it's kind of a soft launch. Uh, so this comes after well, the game was live in, in for PC and also uh, in Google Play uh, at the end of last year. But in, in this case, it's very more more interesting because uh, um, Apple has been like uh, less permissive with games that relate to NFTs and has like more uh, rules against an, uh, NFTs or restrictions related to NFTs. So, but despite of that, uh, they've managed to to launch the game there and. Uh, did the companies uh, hopeful uh, for a future uh, in-app NFT transactions have been allowed inside the game? Uh, so this this has been was well received by I would say people speculating uh, because the the game's launch boost Axie Infinity's uh, cryptocurrency uh, a lot, uh, like six to ten percent, uh, but then. It went back to the normal trend, so I think like it was more like a spe- speculative move rather than something like really speaking the interest in, in the market. And also interestingly, uh, it omits the Philippines, which has been the the most the country where where the original game was much uh, was much more popular. So it's been quite quite interesting to see that this game is not is not launching there. So. Um, uh, what, what do you think? Is this setting like a, a precedent uh, in, in in the App Store? And do you think that Apple is going to be more permissive with NFT uh, transactions in, in games? I mean, I think that's a big topic. Um, I mean, I, I don't think this is necessarily like the ideal outcome for the game to launch in a state where what it's most known for, it can't really put front and center. Um, like that's incredibly crippling, and uh, I mean, I think this launch was on iOS specifically, and they have been on Android for a while, and it hasn't Origins hasn't performed that well there either. I think they have like a cumulative 150k download since they launched, basically at the start of the year, um, and that's tailed off quite a bit. And so, um, you know, whatever we have seen so far hasn't been the cure to to Axie Infinity's woes. Obviously, the team has gotten smarter about managing the economy to at least to, to some extent. But when you go, the hard part is just like when you go from your core user base expecting to make money to needing your core user base to just be something else entirely. That's a really hard transition um, to make. And there have always been questions along the way. Like, uh, of course, here specifically is just like, with mobile restrictions, how can upselling work? Or even just, you know, they sold a lot of land. Like, and that was, there were always, always high hopes on like that unlocking new types of their business model. And I don't think they've quite figured that out yet. And that also is probably pretty restricted when it comes to what is workable on, on mobile. So I don't think, I think there still is a lot more work to do from what I can tell for the, the Axie team. Um, and we've talked in a previous episode, maybe a month ago, about how Philip Law, the um, the, the lead game designer for Axie Infinity, has left the company and gone elsewhere. And you know, it's speculation about what that really means about the state of the game, um, and you know how optimistic 
he was or the team was or whether there's agreement or disagreement on kind of the trajectory of where things wanted to go. But um, but yeah, I don't think it's a super positive note. But Devin, I'm also curious to hear your take on this because I know through all of our week-to-week coverage um, and, and Novik Pro, you've had a, a much keener pulse on like the actual game design and economy design changes of all things Axie. So I'm also just curious to get your take on like even mobile, like this launch aside, like is Origins good or are there like still major things that like need to be done for it to su- succeed anywhere that it is operating? The, the big problem that with trying to make this kind of tr- mobile transition is like, it, as you mentioned before, it had kind of its core audience and they can't really port that core audience over. Even if you take the earning out of it and just focus on the Web3 aspects, uh, Apple doesn't really want like gated uh, content by NFTs, which is what Axie was kind of famous for, right? You needed to buy the NFTs to play the game, which is part of what made it so successful during like its time period. Uh, because, you know, you got an Axie's going for thousand plus dollars and that was a big deal. You needed those to play, all that hype. Now that they had to move in, in origin to a sort of freemium model where there's like some free Axies you could get. But unless they've changed the game around a lot for this mobile release, you're going to be kind of stunted at like a few initial axes, and then you can't get any more. So unless they add in-app purchases for axes and kind of break away from the NFT model for them, or just like hope people want to like find some way to go, you know, go get axes on their own. I can't imagine players sticking around in this game that aren't familiar with the Web3 aspect and comfortable going around iOS and you know Apple's not going to be super happy if everyone's just doing that and then like no money's actually flowing through them. It just doesn't seem like with the state of the way Apple is running things and with the way Axie is designed, there's not really like a success path here for the game. I don't think like uh, I I can't see like people just going like oh I've I've been so excited to play Axie forever like and I just never had the money to buy an NFT before. I'll totally play it now. It's just there's a million other games on the App Store that are, I, I hate to say it better. Uh, I mean, like, Axie's not the worst game, but it's also not the best uh, in terms of fun. So, I mean, good luck, but it doesn't seem like uh, a path to success at all. Like, it's just like this transitional thing while other stuff is going on in Ronin. They have other games, you know, they've been adding to Ronin. That I like, some of them are actually starting to trickle out uh, even onto mobile. There was the, the, the Heroes Bears one, I can't remember the exact name, uh, that's starting to kind of come out onto mobile as well. You know, they're, they're trying to diversify because they know that, that that's, you know, that's not going to be the winner anymore. Can I ask um, uh, like a maybe a slightly step removed question for you all that I've been thinking about? So what, one trend that we've seen with Web3 games is that because of the restrictions that platforms are putting on what is possible with NFTs, tokens, um, that um, many, many companies have been launching versions of the game without the the token elements with the hope that it then upsells or like moves convinces to move people to other versions of the game with it or like just somewhere else on the internet like that has more functionality that you can plug into um have we seen an example of that working yet um i i don't from what I've seen, I don't know if we have. I know there ex- exists examples like this on mobile. There are examples on Steam. Um, but I don't know. Do, do any of you know, like, has has that worked yet? Or, like, is this a strategy that probably will <laughs> never work that way, do you think? 
maybe with the some of the South Korean like uh, like MMO ARPG games, I would say it might be working to an extent. It's hard to say uh, because we, we don't have like a lot of sometimes transparency into like how well the Web three site is doing. Uh, but they usually pull off decent numbers just by being you know pretty good games on the Web two side. So I would say that there's probably a good chance. I know like Oath of Peak, for example, has been doing pretty good. Uh, it seems like on the the Web two and the Web three side, so maybe that's an example. One, it's a little bit lighter on the Web three than some of the other ones that came after, but that might be maybe one of the examples that we have potentially in that area. The problem is too, like your split business model. Uh, if you're making most of your money, your revenue through IAP, do you really want to shove everyone over to Web three and like forego that and hope royalty payments are going to be enough, or vice versa? If you're making all your money through Web three, then it's like it's going to be kind of hard to try and. Uh, make enough revenue without uh, constantly finding end arounds around Apple and things like that. So it just it seems like it's kind of a rock and a hard place uh, for most of these. And then you you know I even mentioned the South Korean developers; they can't even release it in their own country. So like not just not just App Store restrictions worldwide, but also even their own country. So it's it's just it's a tough place to be in for that business. Also, it's a bit of a conflict, right, in the the business proposition right so one is like in a purchases you buy something like it's more like a consumable or something that you only have in the game and if you leave the game you won't uh, be getting back and the nfts is something that you really own that is outside of the game and then you can transfer and get money back so it's kind of like two opposite things so it's as Devin is saying right like if you manage to make one working like if you manage to make any purchase working how can you like get rid of that and lose that money and try to sell NFTs, right? Uh, for something that you are selling over and over again. And the opposite, if players are there for having things that are forever there for them, how they are going to then now pay just for using them for some time and not owning them. Yeah, I think uh, Gabe said it, uh, Gabe Layden, just to be clear, at uh, GamesBeat just yesterday, the day before, uh, one line that kind of stood out was him saying that he doesn't think maybe even NFTs or tokens will be the way for necessarily for revenue, but maybe more for marketing, uh, which I thought was kind of an interesting take on yeah. it. It's like, maybe that's the way that you make money off is just pulling people into the game and then making money off in app purchases. So, I mean, yeah. I guess I guess we'll wait and see, right? We're kind of in the middle of the that whole business model shifting. Uh, but speaking of business models shifting, not always well, uh, we had some some fresh news coming in over the last 24, 48 hours around Embracer. Yeah, so Embracer just released its full year preliminary results. And this this literally just came out like right before we, we started recording. So we haven't had much time to go through everything. But um, the stock is down 45%. Um, today so far, which which you know caught our attention and is is worth a look at what the heck is going on here. Um, and so uh, I took a quick look at the results, and in a lot of ways, it's more of the same. The company, as we all know, went on an M and A frenzy over the past few years, and now organic growth and the timelines of various projects are struggling. And it's become um, evident that Embracer was somewhat value destructive in in that strategy that it aggressively pursued. Um, however, the the big thing that's popping out this quarter and what's sending the stock down 45% is that an unnamed partnership that management thought it landed um, fell through. And, and that deal would have brought $2 billion in contracted development revenue um, over the next six years. And for context, Embracer earned $3.5 billion in revenue this year. 
Um, so that's basically assuming that 10% of the total revenue that they thought that they would get um, um, is basically vanished from, from their guidance. And so again, we don't know who that partner is. There aren't many companies that can pay $2 billion in contracted development fees. So it's very likely one of the, the biggest of the big companies out there, maybe Amazon, maybe Disney, maybe some big co-development partnership with a Tencent or who knows. Uh, it's, it's speculation until they make clear if they ever do. Um, but um, obviously, this change lowers revenue forecast. But the contracted development is also guaranteed profit for a company um, like this. That is more you get paid to do the work and you don't just earn the revenue when, when the game sells. Um, and so it actually also has a bigger impact on earnings. And paired with you know the broader industry softening pipeline struggles and efficiency woes that Embracer has seen, the company revised down its adjusted earnings for the next 12 months by 30%. And that's adjusted earnings. So that's the, the generous view of how they want you to see um, their, their earnings as a company. Um, so you know, off the bat, this is not a great look. But when you zoom out, um, it's it's even worse than than just this deal, right? So Embracer's stock price is now back to its early 2018 levels, so where it was a bit over five years ago. And what's remarkable about that fact, um, and what blows my mind, is that's before all of the crazy M and A picked up, and so. Revenue for like full year 2017 was 0.25 billion SEK. Um, and over the past 12 months, it's 37.7 billion <laughs> SEK. And so, uh, in short, despite growing their revenue over 150 times um, in that five year period, they actually created no value um, for anyone who was an owner of the business. And that's just like, like, honestly, like that's kind of as like, you know, having studied businesses, been an investor, you know, thought a lot about capital allocation, like th this is bad. Um, and, and it really shows that like the capital allocation strategy that was the backbone of why Embracer was hyped and what their, their core like means of growing and thinking about their long-term strategy, it didn't work. Um, and so so here we are, um, especially on a day like this, double feeling the pain when a few things are kind of going wrong at at once. Um, and so Embracer has a lot to work through if it wants to re-earn the trust of investors and perhaps even partners too, uh, which we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes there, but it's, it's not a good look. Um, and obviously, a better focus, like many companies on efficiency and more focused on ROI of internal projects um, is is one way that they they can and 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 will continue to to improve. Um, but it also just needs to ship more awesome stuff. You know, it's the <laughs> at the core, games businesses just need to deliver great games and they need to work out their pipeline issues and just start shipping bigger and better things. Um, and so, yeah, I guess long story short, you know, they always release these like 100 page like earnings documents where you can go and read all the details that you want. Um, so that's that's there for you. But in short, that's kind of my view of what what happened lately. We haven't had much time to digest this, but I'll open it up if anyone else has any other thoughts on what's going on here. Or what what they should do next? I'd be curious to hear. 
more than thoughts and just feeling sorry because you mentioned like people that had invested like five years ago like are equal right but like maybe there are people that invested like two months ago right and they they saw the money halving so wow that's that's something that like i feel really sorry for them and like i feel like when you think of this big conglomerate you think like okay they, they have a lot of potential for creating synergies internally right so that to be able to to be more stable but yeah it's i mean it's kind of an indictment on the roll-up model um certainly there haven't been a lot of successes to point to um and uh we just saw what was it eg7 the other day also like their shareholders were saying we're recommending that they sell the company or sell off parts of the company something like that um that was another smaller roll-up company um, certainly Embracer has a lot of, one would think, valuable IPs and studios that other, um, publishers might, you know, might also value. So maybe we'll start to see, um, with, especially with the stock down so much, like we'll start to see some interest in selling off some of those properties or maybe someone taking over the entire operation. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm obviously speculating here, but, um, you know, we haven't seen a lot of successes coming out of Embracer. I couldn't point to a game that was like a flagship success for them. Um, maybe I'm just not aware of their many IPs, but um, I don't know. It's, it's not a great look, as others have said. Yeah, I think it is um, telling of the, the roll-up model in general. It seems like we, we kind of quickly went through and ended an era there that probably was a byproduct of the zero interest rate phenomenon where it was sure, easy sure. to raise money through debt and equity and then chase deals and at a time when valuations were, were all high, including the valuation of these companies themselves that were extra hyped up because people thought that they could continue growing by buying and it was this feedback loop um, that they really they just overpaid for a bunch of deals and it really i really think it's just the discipline of the price uh that these companies paid across the spectrum that was the biggest issue at stake um but also just sort of the double whammy of like this happening then you know post covid slowdowns and then uh post idfa you know impacts and you know and then it's just like managing the complexity of all these entities and trying to find synergies that aren't obvious. Um, uh, that's that's hard to do. So uh, it's really a mix of those things. But really, at the end of the day, it really I I think it the biggest piece is just um, uh, diligence on the price that companies are willing to pay for the deals that they make. And we're now seeing that to change and across the spectrum with both Embracer still front. Other companies, there is a, a much more of a focus on ROI and, and internally for all the things that they do, which I think is healthy. And in and in, in measuring these 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 synergies to really see what they have and where they can where they can lean. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the roll up strategy is it's not dead. There's always going to be M and A, but this type of business, um, uh, not to say it can't work. I think it it can, but it really takes. Maybe another level of capital allocation, um, you know, skills and in my view. But the, the other thing, the last thing is that just like with Embracer, it's not it's not all terrible. <laughs> you know, it's a big company with some good things going on, right? Like their tabletop business in particular, like actually is a very good business. 
that has pretty dominant market share and good competitive advantages. And now that this is a a business that also owns gaming studios and like has access to lots of IP, like there's much more that they can do there than than in the past to continue building. That's not enough to move the needle for the entire business, but um, it's worth worth calling out some of some of the good if we're going to also talk about some of the bad here. I guess I wonder with that is it, like might there also be a a, a release schedule factor here like where uh, you know a lot of the companies that they acquired still have something in the pipe that hasn't come out yet that could be like this next big huge hit blows up their their revenue and then like then it's like wow this was a genius move because now they they acquired you know a bunch of companies and some of them did amazing and some of them just did okay and that was enough like i i mean i don't know what the, the pipeline looks like for the stuff that they have like coming out and i know a lot of stuff got really kind of delayed from covid and the, even just the kind of work from home sort of like tr- transfer where people had to kind of move back to the studios really kind of just everything was slow like is there some potential there that like maybe stuff's just delayed even now, now you really sound like a crypto guy it's like don't worry it's coming the game is coming the big one's coming it's just wait just wait stake stake it just yeah. stake i mean um you know the i guess the counter argument would be like Every other company has also been operating under those conditions as well, and they've managed to ship games that have been successful or somewhat successful. So, you know, we're all kind of operating on the same playing field. Not every company has, you know, 50, 70 studios, whatever it is that Embracer has, but um, that's the strategy that they chose to pursue, and you just got to deliver, you know? Hopefully they will. I guess guess we'll see, right? Uh, It's going to be probably rough this week for, for the stock, at least. Uh, as people kind of digest and then as Aaron mentioned, they, they may not ever mention what that deal was that didn't end up going through. So I guess we'll just have to probably speculate for quite a while on that. But um, speaking of bloodbaths, uh, <laughs> Mortal Kombat trying to make a comeback here. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a big announcement uh, not too long ago that uh, uh, there's a new Mortal Kombat title coming. And um, I thought it'd be a good opportunity for us to kind of look at fighting games uh, more broadly, there's there's a number of big fighting games kind of on the horizon, and um, just kind of an interesting um, opportunity to look at the genre uh, as a whole. So I, I saw a chart recently that that showed the highest selling fighting game franchises uh, of all time, and Mortal Kombat is number one. Um, it um, surprisingly, um, Street Fighter is not even in the top three. Um, which would surprise me, but so number two is, uh, the smash franchise actually, um, just behind Mortal Kombat. And then Tekken is number three, street fighter, number four. Um, and by the way, number three and number four are like way behind smash and Mortal Kombat. It's like, it, it's, it's, um, kind of surprising, but, um, anyways, we're, we're talking about the new Mortal Kombat announcement here. Um, this is being called Mortal Kombat one. Uh, so a bit of a reset. If you remember the last title, which came out in 2019, that was Mortal Kombat 11. Um, so they're going for a bit of a reset here. Um, they're going to do reboot the story for whatever that's worth. Um, they have a, they're introducing what they're calling a cameo fighter system, cameo with a K of course. Um, and, um, you know, maybe hinting at some, um, DLC or, or live service there. If you look back at the last Mortal Kombat, they had some DLC, uh, fighters that were like not endemic to Mortal Kombat. So they had Spawn, Robocop, 
the Joker, Rambo. Um, and so I'm sure that they're going to run that back. You know, we see these sort of collabs in other games too. And I would not at all be surprised to see Mortal Kombat do something similar with their cameo fighter system um, as a means to just kind of like extend the, the, the runway for a game that's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, actually a $70 box this time, not a $60 box. So they're, they're also jumping on that $70 skew uh, trend. Uh, worth noting, it's not the first reboot that Mortal Kombat has done either. Um, back in 2011, they released Mortal Kombat um, after Mortal Kombat Armageddon. Uh, so they've done this before. Um, and, and so as I mentioned earlier, there are some other big games on the horizon, right? So Street Fighter VI comes out in just a couple of weeks here, June 6th. This is um, injecting some some new life into the genre. It's like a quasi-open world, uh, which is kind of interesting for a fighting game, right? And they have a whole character creator um, system where you can customize your fighter. And, and, and if, you, if you do some Googling, you'll see some truly uh, terrifying creations out there on the internet uh, of custom Street Fighter <laughs> characters. Uh, and then we also have Tekken 8, which is uh, scheduled for maybe later this year, early next year. And of course, on the horizon, there is always the Project L from Riot Games, their fighter, uh, which I'm very excited for. Um, there are a number of other fighting franchises out there that um, probably most listeners are, are not on their radar. But if you're a, a fighting enthusiast, there, there are several others that are coming out this year as well. And then finally, worth noting that there's also another Mortal Kombat movie in the works. So if you saw the last Mortal Kombat movie, uh, it wasn't exactly high cinema, but it was like a great action flick if you like action movies. And it was true to the franchise, very nostalgic if you're like me and you grew up playing those games. Uh, so the, the Mortal Kombat 2 movie is in the works. That's expected to come out sometime next year. And it's um, for those of you that watch The Boys, Carl Urban is uh, supposedly going to be playing Johnny Cage. So not not hard-hitting business analysis there, but for the fans... I, you know, personally, I'm excited about that. Um, so anyways, like this is the setup, right? For Mortal Kombat 1 um, coming into the market. By the way, they only, uh, it's coming out in September. They've only given themselves about four months of a marketing window. I don't know if that's good or bad. Maybe we can speculate about that, but, um, you know, kind of surprising. And uh, as I said, they're going up against pretty tough competition, it looks like. So, you know, what do you all think? Should we be worried about this short marketing window? Do we think that Mortal Kombat 1 is going to meaningfully improve on 11? Uh, is it going to, are they going to be able to hold their top spot uh, in the fighting genre uh, against some of these strong challengers that are coming down the pipe, particularly Street Fighter VI? I think that one will be really interesting. What do you all think? I don't know. In my case, I, I, I used to be a, a fighter game, but uh, I, I'm out of the of the business for, for a long, so I can't really, can really think like what's, what's the... I mean, I feel like the, there's a general that's missing some innovation in the late, late year. So looking forward for, for Street Fighter VI, uh, what they are going to bring. Maybe that uh, makes me revive my attention to, to, to the genre. Uh, but I don't know if it's just a remake and trying to, to make uh, uh, the nostalgia feeling uh, of players with better graphics. I'm not sure if that's going to be competitive. Yeah, I don't I don't entirely know what to make of the brand reset, but uh, you know, putting into the context of just how the games around it are changing too, Street Fighter, Riot coming out with what will probably be a fresh take. It makes sense 
that if you're the top dog, that you need to put your best foot forward to stay fresh as well in order to to maintain that status as best you can. So at, at you know a high level view, I, I sort of get it. Um, I also was looking at um, some of the the numbers too, and I I didn't know the the tier list of the unit sales of of these franchises before um, before looking into this topic too. But on top of you know obviously seeing Mortal Kombat be number one, I also noticed that just the sales trajectory of this franchise has been pretty solid as well. So Mortal Kombat. 10, I think, which launched in 2015, sold roughly 11 million units. And Mortal Kombat 11, which launched in 2019, sold somewhere between 13 and 15 million units. And I think those are probably the biggest games of the series in steady succession. And, you know, the last two games were four years apart. It's been four years since that last game. So even though the marketing window is maybe not the the biggest, um, it's still probably timeline-wise fits what makes sense for the fans of the franchise. So I, I mean, I would expect it to do pretty well if they do a good job of putting kind of the fresh spin on, on things. Again, it also wouldn't surprise me too, depending on what, what riot does that a year from now, we're just thinking about this genre differently about who we should consider, you know, the future, you know, biggest players here. And so it's kind of hard to, give a perfect assessment without knowing what everyone is up to, especially when you got a looming giant like Riot in the room. And also, you never know, too, with... um, I mean, Smash is always going to be Nintendo only, but with rumors of Switch 2 probably coming out sooner than later, and it, a new Smash there um, could also make make sense and start, you know, making waves. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's an, it's an exciting time for this genre, and it's good to see that kind of alongside the new console generations that these games are all trying to stay um, fresh here. And even as someone who hasn't been a big fighting game player, like seeing, you know, Riot come out with a game or Street Fighter taking a new, even more like open world stance, like it, it, it makes it more compelling to someone who hasn't, who maybe doesn't want to jump into number 12 to to like find like another like new fresh starting point to to you know put their toes in the water, which I think um, could could be beneficial, but we'll see. Let me just assure you that you're not missing anything plot wise if you come in at twelve versus ten oh, yeah. versus five. It like you know I, I I like fighting games. I'm not like a super fan, but there's you know the core loop is the same even if the story changes. You know don't worry about missing anything there. I guess throwing a different angle on the, on the topic then is the, the in, in terms of platform and technology and like arcade scene. So like, uh, for example, in, in Japan, the arcade scene got weakened like really hard by COVID, right? So like that should definitely, I would think, impact, for example, Street Fighter's success over there, which might be doing, and I don't know what the distribution's like, but might be like maybe more successful in Japan because the arcade scene versus like the home console play. And then you have the history of like, especially Street Fighter games and just fighting games in general, really struggling with like PC ports that have good net code and things like that. And you and then you look at the top two, as you mentioned, uh, Smash Brothers isn't really well known for, for like internet play either. Whereas Mortal Kombat might a little bit more uh, lean towards like console internet-based play and stuff like that. Like, how do you guys think 
that sort of factor plays into this competition when you've got like the net code, the arcades, uh, the, the, the people doing Smash Brothers tournaments as like, you know, these in-person Evo kind of things. Like how does all that play into, into going into 2024 with these games all kind of vying for that same attention? It's an interesting thought. I wonder how big of the pie, the arcade aspect is really. Because to me, the the more interesting, not to change this, the subject necessarily, but the, the more interesting aspect to me is like, how do they incorporate live service into these games? Because I, I suspect that's where they make a lot of money. Of course, they all charge up front, right? So it's a premium game. Um, now going to 70 bucks for Mortal Kombat. I'm sure Street Fighter will do the same thing. Tekken will probably do the same thing. Um, but they like... You know, Smash was a good example. They, they they had their like character packs that they were releasing every so often. You had to like sign up for that. I think like um, there's uh, Mortal Kombat does something similar where they had DLC packs where they're releasing new fighters. Like these are these are the sort of beats that they uh, the the big content drops, but they're also like very um, labor intensive to make new fighters and balance them and get their move sets right and everything. So there are other features. Um, Mortal Kombat is the one I know best, but I don't know if Street Fighter has done something like this where Mortal Kombat has like an in-game currency that you can buy also, and you can use it on like different modes. Like they have this, they had this mode, I think it's called the crypt with a K where you can like go around this little map in first person and you're like unlocking different, um, sort of little, like Easter eggs. It's like concept art and like different, um, cosmetics and things like that. It's like, you know, just little fun little things for the hardcore fans, but you get that currency either by purchasing it or by earning it in the game. So it's like another lever for them to pull from a live service perspective. So to me, that's the aspect that's more interesting because I suspect I have no evidence here, but I suspect that that's where they bring more ongoing revenue than say like arcade sales or esports tournaments or something like that. That stuff is all important for like marketing and, and like growing the community and things like that. But I don't know how big of the pie it is from a business perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it sometimes can be hard to get all that info, right? Like from, from these, uh, the numbers that they give, like, I'd even be curious to see how much, um, the, the DLC characters brought people to buying the game. So like, I, I will admit, I, I bought the game because I could play as RoboCop and Terminator. Um, although I probably don't count as a sale cause I bought it on Stadia. And then of course, you know, Stadia refunded me at some point when they shut it down. But it's, uh, you know, it's interesting cause it's like, I was a lapsed Mortal Kombat player. I haven't played since like three, but I was like, oh, I could jump in this time. Not because I'm familiar with the characters, but because I could play as RoboCop or Joker or, uh, Terminator. And I, I, I wonder if like that sort of thing as well can help them bring in lapsed players, uh, maybe they don't care about the story or maybe that feel outclassed by just really not knowing the characters at this point. And like, Hey, you know, I don't know any of the characters, but I know RoboCop. I could, I could figure RoboCop out, you know, like I don't, I don't feel out of place. hundred percent. That, that like mashup aspect is so important. And like smash did an amazing job with that. Right. Like, you know, I was um, super into smash because I could play as cloud from final fantasy seven. That's my favorite game. Um, but s- same as you, like, I thought it was really interesting what they do with mortal Kombat, bringing in like the Joker and like they, they have the whole like injustice franchise also that they can like leverage if they want. The one that I really want to see come back is Marvel versus Capcom. Like bring that back. I will buy it. I will get all the characters. Like the mashup aspect is so important because people have this affinity for all these IPs. Maybe that's something they could do as part of uh, that new Street Fighter. 
So, so you know, I mean, is Capcom that maybe they could get Marvel because I mean, Disney's been doing that. a lot with their branding into these days and trying to to do stuff with Marvel. So I, I mean, I'm not saying they will, but that would certainly be an interesting idea uh, to try and bring it back that way. Because as you said, there, there's a lot of fans of that franchise. Whether or not it's sold a lot, it's definitely a I think a missed franchise here versus some of these other ones that are, that are dragging on a little bit in age at this point. But, but as you mentioned, there's also a movie coming out, uh, you know, that will help, I imagine, market, you know, the short marketing window for the game, but then also getting remarketed next year uh, for the movie, potentially, assuming it releases on time. Yeah, you know that uh, movie exclusive character is going to appear in the game at some point, but he has to. Right. As long as it's actually Carl Urban, then I'll be interested. Uh, but... Anyways, uh, speaking of uh, earnings and, and and making money here, uh, Take Two and Ubisoft have uh, have put out their earnings statements. Yeah, we can start with Take Two, um, which you know, at a high level, the financial numbers honestly are kind of useless. Like if you if you look at it right now, from the standpoint of uh, their Q4 revenue was up fifty six percent, I think. Um, but you know. Zynga being here this year, but and not last year, is skewing that. There's different comps due to game release timing, um, etc. And so it, the the current quarterly results as a whole are not actually that interesting, and not that much has really changed with Take Two over the last quarter or two. Um, um, but there are a couple interesting um, tidbits from little. Uh, financial details here that I think are are worth pointing out. So um, first, the, the company had two impairment charges, um, you know, buried in their financial results this quarter. One of them was a fifty four million dollar impairment charge related to unannounced projects that were canceled. And right now, um, I count fifty two projects in the company's pipeline um, through fiscal twenty four through twenty six, down from what their goal of it was 69 in fiscal 23 through 25. So um, in my mind, that's just a sign that they're focusing on fewer but higher impact projects as a company. And that has shifted a little bit over the past couple of years, which lines up with a lot of the discussion that CEO Strauss Selnick has said about how the biggest IPs really are taking share and consumers want to spend time with the brands that they, they know most, especially as these brands build bigger ecosystems um, with more engagement uh, opportunities for for players. So so that was one little thing that I noticed. Um, the other, the bigger impairment charge of $465 million related to Zynga assets. And we've been saying for a long time that Take-Two overpaid for that deal. Um, and this is them finally admitting that for the first time, maybe not in words, but in numbers. Um, and so... Um, they said it's a one-time charge, uh, but you know it was a multi-billion-dollar purchase. I, I think we all know that if the deal were done today, it probably would have been half the price that they paid. So, an impairment charge of four hundred and sixty-five million dollars is maybe actually kind of low. Um, but of course, how accounting works versus how we would view it you know, in in the market, like you sort of need to read between the lines. So, who knows? Maybe there's other impairment charges down the road. But um, I guess this is them also feeling more confident. And Zynga being able to to kind of uh, study the ship and turn around from here, although of course it still is a major anchor on the business for now and probably for the for the near term. Um, so so those are two kind of 
small, interesting tidbits that I think are, are worth pointing out. Um, the other one, and in our pro coverage, Mario, um, our, our great writer there, he pointed out that even though management is guiding for low growth next year, quote, CEO Strauss Zelnick's comments that the period from April 2024 to March 2025 would be marked by several groundbreaking titles that would push the company toward $8 billion in bookings, $1 billion in adjusted cash flow. Um, these bookings would represent a 45% increase over guidance for 2024. Such an ambitious forecast would uh, would not be issued for new AAA IP and must instead be due to the new planned installment of the GTA franchise. So uh, again, they haven't announced GTA 6. We all know it's there. but they're sort of announcing it in the numbers um, for for that fiscal um, time period of between April 2024 and March 2025 when they expect the numbers to really start picking up. Um, so we all know how these games go. It could get delayed one or two or multiple times. Um, so it might not actually be that, that time period. Uh, but now we have an actual window at least financially to to look forward to and so you can backtrack from there and probably assume that like yeah if that's the window they're aiming for then probably pretty soon we'll start to hear more uh about this game um and so um anyways that, that was kind of the main like new points i i pulled out of this earnings report otherwise this is a company that still has great franchises that are doing well the GTA isn't selling as well as it used to, but engagement on GTA Online has picked up a little bit, bit from where it was. NBA 2K is doing really well. Um, and of course, they're gearing up for new games and their biggest franchises um, like Bioshock, Borderlands, etc. Down, down the road. And these just all take time to get to. Um, but nothing new has really changed there other than these little details. So, um, so that's that. Um, I I mean we could take this conversation a few different paths on you know you know whether when Zynga will stop being an anchor for the business whether Take Two has other catalysts um, etc. Um, but I'll, I'll let you guys maybe comment on like where you want to take this if you have other thoughts. We've we've of course talked about this business quite a bit, but if there's something new or something on your mind related to Take Two, I'd be really curious to to know what you think of all this. But it's interesting how you put Zynga, right? Like as, as an anchor. <laughs> For me, I feel like, yeah, I agree that I think uh, Zynga acquisition was like quite uh, maybe overpriced and they're still like seeing the impact of that. I feel like uh, they're restructuring a lot internally and uh, they, they, they haven't uh, seen any big games coming out or... Uh, nothing that cat has created hype. Maybe they have many things in development, but like nothing that really uh, is creating any hype. So it feels like uh, they they want to use Tinga to get into mobile, but it's not really making a synergy. Maybe th- this needs more more time to 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 happen. Uh, so I don't know if, for instance, like if they have any plans to to have anything related to mobile with the new uh, GTA Six. Uh, that could be something like quite interesting that you could do some stuff in the mobile that complements your gameplay in, in the console. But. Yes, then I, I'm also wondering, Zynga was talking around Web3 quite a bit, uh, like around that, that time. And with everything kind of cooling down around Web3, I also wonder if like they're shifting around within the company as well. Like 
you know, do you, do you think they're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe that's not the direction to go. Like, like, you know, a lot of Web2 companies that, you know, were dabbling in Web3 kind of like pumped the brakes pretty fast when things started slowing down. Like, I imagine if if that's the direction Zynga was going, that could really slow down their ability to like help take two grow. Maybe. I think there's probably something to that in the sense that, um, you know, take two as an overall business appears um, pretty, um, pretty uh, like they have pretty heavy diligence to making sure that they have good ROI on the projects that they work on for the most part. Doesn't mean they're always right, but they try to keep that focus. And so if there are the lower hanging fruit of Web3 projects that they foresee like pretty obvious struggles, um, you know, getting scale and getting ROI on, I could totally see that being something that they dropped. And it fits with what I said, which is how like the number of projects in the pipeline, if you count today compared to what they said in the past, is down. It wouldn't surprise me if Web3 is a small component um, of that difference. But I mean, beyond that, I mean, it really is just the mobile environment has been tough as a whole. And they bought Zynga basically with expectations for growth. And then it did the opposite. And it, I think it's, you know, actually, if anything, more like shrunk as a business and it's, you know, finding its footing to get back to growth again um, at some point. And all, all the while too, like continuing to, to streamline how mobile is run within the business, both shutting down certain studios, folding games into like br- the broader umbrella operation of, of Zynga, conducting, you know, layoffs here, here and there, p- partly related to, to the acquisition and partly just cost cutting measures in general. And I'm sure that has an impact also related to the project pipeline on mobile and elsewhere. So I think all of those things um, inter interrelate quite a bit. Um, so it's not all great news from the sense of like, that means that the growth prospects maybe are, are less in the past, but being as focused as they are on the highest potential projects still bodes well for them. At the end of the day, GTA 6 is what's going to move the needle most for this business. Not really any anything else. I mean, everything else adds up, but as like one project, like that determines whether this company outperforms or not um, over the next three years or so, um, you could call it. Um, but yeah, all the, the other inner workings are super interesting to track too. Well, so much writing on that, then I would hope they would not try and rush GTA six out the door, you know, I mean, they, they gave kind of a potential window for it, but I would imagine if that gets delayed, I mean, obviously companies, you know, make the wrong decision all the time, but it seems like it would be worth letting that cook to fruition. Uh, if, if you're betting that much on that, that franchise. Yeah. Rockstar is typically pretty good at putting out quality products at the end. So I'm not, not, not too worried, but I guess I should probably switch gears to Ubisoft since we're, um, Entering our, our final moments, maybe we can keep this one a bit briefer. Um, and uh, I mean, long story short, Ubisoft continues to struggle. We've chronicled the struggles of this business over the past couple of years on this podcast. And it really is just a continuation of what we've talked about over an extended period of time at this point. Bookings are now down two years in a row and are actually lower today than they were five years ago. Earnings are not great. Um, you know, more if you compare over the past year, debt has risen while cash has fallen. Um, and the stock price is now where it was 15 years ago. 15, uh, which, you know, it's gone through ups and downs since then. But even so, um, that's a pretty striking fact, in my opinion. Um, and 
Uh, Ubisoft recently has been the go-to example of a company that needs to get financially fit and more efficient, but it hasn't, at least at the same rate as other publishers out there. And they are starting to. Headcount is slightly down um, over previous periods, and they have a 200 million euro cost-cutting plan. Um, But I don't think it's enough yet, and so we'll probably see more uh, to come. And of course, they're dealing with their own jurisdictions and the countries they operate that have an impact on what they can do. But even so, I expect them to get try to get more um, efficient, even if it is challenging. Um, most of the backlog and pipeline is still struggling and questionable. There are some interesting. Uh, there are some interesting games out there, like X Defiant has you know sort of been making waves in the community. Although we talked before about how the shooter market is very top heavy and so it's hard to to break through with with something new and so it's still probably a lot of questions about the true um, potential of a game um like that there is growth in certain areas with tom clancy games but um interestingly the the main place ubisoft is doubling down on is assassin's creed um they're increasing headcount on assassin's creed actually quite a lot right now at a time when they're trying to cut headcount most everywhere else um, in the in the business, and um, you know, also the next game, uh, Assassin's Creed game Mirage, it's going to be less live ops focused, and they're still teasing their Infinity platform. So I kind of view it as like this company is putting more eggs into the Assassin's Creed basket, and I think that makes sense for the same reasons we talked about with all these other companies that the biggest and best IPs continue to gain share, and really you need to work hard to make the most. Of that, I am a little curious about the different types of Assassin's Creed games, how that's going to go, and really how it's all going to come together on one platform. I don't want to judge it too soon, but um, I think it's fair to be have questions until proven otherwise. Um, in in this case, uh, but also, I guess uh, the uh, lastly, I'll say Ubisoft quotes. Expect strong top-line growth and non-IFRS operating income at approximately 400 million euros, uh, end quote. Um, and so they're trying to target growth from here, which is very much needed because it's been falling, as I mentioned, for two years in a row. Um, but uh, I also might not fully trust those targets given how things can be delayed at any time like they have been in the past. So um Maybe the the theme throughout all I'm saying is that it's just been a long time of uh, Ubisoft underperforming and not hitting the expectations that they set. And so when they throw all these new things out, the the honest, typical reaction now is just to have questions and be a little skeptical and to kind of wait and see if they can actually um, pull it off, which is unfortunate, but that's seems to be the pervasive view in the market given given how this company is now um, trading. So that, that was sort of my view on what's new with Ubisoft. Um, and so I guess my, my question for the group as we probably get closer to wrapping up um, is whether you think Ubisoft is making tangible progress to really turn things around or is it still not enough based on what we're seeing right now? And if it isn't still enough, then what are the other things that, that they need to do to really make the next, call it like three years, more of a, a real turnaround for for them as a business. I mean, personally, I think they've just been delaying and dragging their feet on too many projects that either need to be cut or need to be like, get out the door. Like say, for example, Rainbow Six, 
uh, Siege for Mobile has been dragged on forever and they just keep doing these beta periods. Uh, and I mean, the game looks like it's close to done and has been for a while. And I got to imagine they're just having tr- you know trouble figuring out how to make it the right market fit or to try and like expand the audience enough, you know, because it's a difficult game to port. But that's an example one like they, they probably should just put out. But then you've got ones like Skull and, Bro- Skull and Bones should have been cut a long time ago. Uh, and they just keep dragging that on. And it's, I, do, I, I mean, I haven't seen like the earliest versions, but I, I don't imagine from what I've seen over the last year or so that it's, that it's really gotten that much better. Uh, it's still just open world, world formula stuff that they keep putting out that people are kind of sick of at this point. And they, they also started burning bridges in that territory with like the Ghost Recon franchises. So it's like they've just like kind of, not really left a lot of good options for themselves. And that's why they go to Assassin's Creed. Whereas like, and I don't think X Defiance really going to move the needle all that much for them either. So it's like, they're kind of not left with a lot of options. I don't think we're going to see like a new Rayman come out of the works or something and like blow everyone away. So like they, they just have so few franchises that they aren't either just like letting languish or needing to put it like like a new splinter cell i think everyone's like well why don't they just do that right those kinds of things where you wonder how they're managing these franchises that seem like that is probably where they could be a lot more efficient yeah do you think the doubling down on assassin's creed is going to work as much as they hope it will i mean my personal guess is 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 part partially like that that some of it'll work and some of it won't they they don't have a perfect track record with assassin's creed games and i think being overly ambitious with them uh that's not usually it doesn't usually work out well for ubisoft i think when they're overly ambitious uh, you know they they tend to bite off more than they could chew and they've released some very buggy assassin's creed games in the past and and run into a lot of problems there so i don't know i think again i feel like they're playing out their open world formula too much and like and maybe i didn't see the numbers for far cry 6 uh, but like they're still just kind of just dragging that formula through the mud with all of their franchises and kind of burning people out. Even the, the last Watch Dogs, I don't even see them potentially continuing that franchise anytime soon because that last one just didn't really make enough of an impact. And I I don't see them also introducing like new IP all that much. Like the X Define, you could call it a new IP, but it's basically just a hodgepodge of their other franchises. They're even trying to inject like Far Cry 6 characters into it, almost to try and give relevance to their other existing games at the time, just to try and like bolster those up. But it's like, if X Define doesn't even get released anytime soon, how relevant is that, right? Like, is it going to have to have all Assassin's Creed characters to get people interested? I mean, it's, it's a weird fit uh, for everything. And I think, like, like I said, I think they're just in a really weird spot they need to maybe just cut some things out and just be like, you know, we're not going to work on those. Let's do like, like what they're doing with Assassin's Creed. Let's focus. Let's also like not let some of these franchises fall apart that we know we can do well. And we just kind of lost direction like Ghost Recon. They can do those. Well, they just got on some tangent uh, with the last two that just was the wrong direction. They could fix it. And they've got these division games ready to be kicked out into mobile and on a, uh, you know, desktop and, uh, and console as well if they can get those out and do well with those, I, I, I think there's areas of potential success for them there. And they are doing, to their credit, they are doing some of that. They have cut a bunch of projects. They are trying to get more efficient. Um, and they are trying to even break from the same open world formula, like this, this next Assassin's Creed game. Um, but yeah, the, the ambition uh, makes me a little nervous with the whole Infinity project and how much of the company is probably riding on the future of Assassin's Creed being successful. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I just kind of wish that they didn't 
um, as a company, put themselves in a corner with um, Tencent coming in and basically reinforcing the the family control um, indefinitely, which makes just the strategic options much more um, challenging. So uh, really the same management team is going to have to, that got Ubisoft into this position is going to be the ones to have to figure out largely how to get them out, uh, which will be interesting to to see how, how that goes. But anyways, yeah, I think it'll be probably a hit and miss. I'm hoping that there's just too much pessimism baked in at this point with like how much Ubisoft has fallen and that some of these things can work to just bring them back to a steadier state. But um, time will tell. And I guess we'll keep on tracking quarter to quarter. And hopefully it won't be as uh, we'll feel a little better in the, the times to come. Definitely. I, I think, uh, you know, there a lot of us, I think have, you know, franchises from Ubisoft. We'd like to see survive, uh, so, so hopefully they can manage to make it through, right? And, and those don't just get sold off piecemeal or something like that over time. But anyways, I want to thank you guys all for a fantastic conversation, as always. And also remind everyone about the the mailbag. Uh, if you guys want to make sure to uh, to shoot us emails at podcast at We're definitely listening, feedback, questions, things like that. And we'll definitely try and make sure to follow up on those. Some of those may uh, require a different group of people to to follow up on, depending on the type of question you ask. So we want to make sure to get those to the right audience and uh, and do a good job uh, with data and things like that for you guys. So definitely keep asking away. I know that some of you have sent some already, so keep at that. And we will respond to those. But thank you all for listening. Uh, Thank you guys for being here today. And of course, we'll see you all next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.